Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, I try my best to. Yes, this is Greg Rashid, and I'm welcoming you this evening to another edition of the Root and Roots Show. And if you're new to the program, we're heard every Friday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and also Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we talk about getting to the root of different issues with newsmakers, authors, etc. And we have an excellent author on tonight. We'll be talking about his book uh, shortly, African Americans Against the Bomb. But I want to set the stage here by playing right now, because the roots aspect of the show, we play root music from jazz, gospel, blues, country, hip-hop, soul, etc. And we're going to do right now the Pilgrim Travelers and Jesus Hits Like an Atom Bomb on the Root and Root Show. You know now everybody's worried about that atom bomb And no one seems worried about the day my Lord shall come You better set your house in order Well, he may be coming soon And he'll hit like an atom bomb when he comes when he comes in 1945, the atom bomb became alive. 1949, the USA got very wise. They found that a country across the line had an atom bomb of the very same kind. People got worried over the land, just like the people in Japan. God told Elijah he'd send down fire, send down fire from the sky. Showed sure all know about the rainbow sign. Won't be one. But for next time You know now Everybody's worried About that atom bomb no one seems worried About the day my Lord shall come You'd better set your house in order Well, he may be coming soon And he'll hit like an atom bomb When he comes when he comes Now don't you get worried Bear in mind Trust King Jesus And you shall find Peace, happiness, joy divine With my Savior on the line God told Elijah He'd send down fire Send down fire from the sky He said he would And I believe he will He'll fight your battle If you keep still You know now Everybody's worried About that atom bomb And no one's in worried About the day my You'd better set your house in order. Well, he may be coming soon. Well, hey, 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 my lord, you know he'll hit like an atom bomb when he comes. When he comes, you know now everybody's worried about that atom bomb. Hey, no one seems worried. About the day my Lord shall come You'd better set your house in order Well, he may be coming soon Hey, 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 my Lord, you know he'll hit like an atom bomb When he comes, when he comes And that was the Pilgrim Travelers on the Root and Root Show And that was from the late, actually the early 50s And that was Jesus Hits Like an Atom Bomb and I chose that song, and I have other songs I'll be playing on a similar vein because I have as my guest this evening the author of the book, African Americans Against the Bomb, Nuclear Weapons, 
colonialism and the black freedom movement. And I'm talking about Dr. Vincent J. I hope I don't brutalize your name, Vincent. Uh, Iantondi. Intondi, you were close. Intondi. Well, thank you, because I always call you Vincent, so it's like I've never actually used your last name. So. That's right. Not a problem. And, I, and listeners, you can join in the conversation at 424-675-8315. 424-675-8315. And I know, Vincent, uh, it's, uh, and I want to explain the story to the listeners before we get into the book. Um, I, for a long time, in the 80s and to the early 90s, I was a anti-war activist. And I traveled the world talking on the issue of anti-nuclearism, be it nuclear weapons and also nuclear energy. And in 2000, late 2013, I happened to come across an article in the Huffington Post about this guy who was writing a, a book about African Americans who were opposed to the bomb. And I just, I was reading the article. I said, I wonder if he is aware of the organization that me and my ex-wife created called Blacks Against Nukes. So fortunately, the Huffington Post had a had his emails. So I just wrote them, and this is where we are right now, because I wrote him and found out that, no, he hadn't, he knew of me, but he knew of the organization, but he didn't have a lot of the information that he has gracefully put in his book, and I just want to thank you, because I thought I was going to get, my wife and I were going to get just like one, you know, one sentence, like, well, there was a group out there called Blacks Against Nukes, so I'm just very happy that you did that, and that you wrote, not so much, yeah. Yeah, and not so much that you wrote a book with us in it, but the whole history, because there's things that I just didn't know, and it's very appropriate to have you on today because last week we honored the, um, and actually this weekend we honored the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, and many times, the majority of the times, people are not aware of his anti-war speeches and the things he did, especially the beyond. Vietnam speech, which I'll be playing at the end of the show, and I'm just happy, Vincent, that you put a lot of the, you know, you put some of the speeches in your book, and some things I, and some of them I just never knew. So I just really want to compliment you on that, and just for writing just a fascinating book of information that I thought I knew about, but I wasn't aware of. So thank you so much, Vincent, and just tell our listeners the genesis of why you decided to write this book. Well, thank you, uh, especially for your work uh, throughout the 1980s. And, and, and to touch first on, on how you and I came about, yeah, I was looking when I was doing my research for this book at the uh, one of the places I was spending time at, the uh, at Swarthmore College, their largest collection of, of peace documents there, and I came across this group uh, band, Blacks Against Nukes, and, and read a, a few articles about you and your ex-wife, and uh thought it was important in its own right what you did, not just for your work and, and the the issues you had to deal with being with a lot of white middle-class pacifist groups, uh, but it was important because I wanted to show readers that there were rank-and-file ordinary citizens like them that took this issue seriously and 
and did something about it and made change with a piece of this, affected policy in the 1980s. That's not just the Martin Luther Kings of the world. It was just ordinary people. Uh, so that was the important piece of having you, and, and luckily we connected, and I got to interview you, and you gave me so much uh, wealth of documents, and we were able to put that in the book and give you your due. Um, and as far as King goes, yes, many people don't realize we're starting now to see a little bit more with Tavis Smiley's book, Cornell West's new book. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson had done it with uh, his book of the radical side of, of Martin King, the part that's largely ignored in, in film and in documentaries, uh, where it critiques capitalism and U.S. foreign policy. But again, the part that gets ignored is the anti-nuclear stance that he took, and, and it's much, much earlier than his anti-war stance. He takes that, he starts speaking against the bomb as far back as 1957, which most people don't realize, and that was in largely due to his wife. His wife, Coretta, uh, was a, a seasoned peace activist dating back to her days at Antioch College. She, uh, she deeply influenced him to combine these issues, to look at how peace and the bomb uh, are, are, are related to, to the black issue. And so uh, that was another piece I wanted to show, uh, her, her influence on him in this regard. In terms of how and, the book started... Uh, folks, yeah, and folks didn't, you but, know, and I'm glad you did that because a lot of people forget the role that Coretta played in the whole struggle, be it civil rights, the anti-nuke movement, war movement, everything. She was a powerful voice. And it's forgotten, and Absolutely. I'm glad that you're one of the folks that brought that up. Absolutely. In fact, for the 20th anniversary of the March on Washington in 1983, she puts together a huge coalition, 25,000 people marched on the mall, and in it, in the platform, in the speeches, she was very clear when she traveled around that one of her big things was to go after what was happening with the arms race and the amount of money being spent on nuclear weapons that Reagan was allocating, how that was hurting black communities, uh, how we needed to ban the bomb. So it's something that was always there uh, in my research. And, again, how it came about was predominantly so much of my academic career, my, my activist career was dealing with the black freedom movement, was dealing with civil rights. And... Um, the first time I went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki was in 2005. And when I went there and met with survivors of the bomb, when I visited the museums, went to the ceremonies, um, visited schools that were bombed, I was, it was so fundamentally changed. That this was, I, couldn't, I didn't know how to process that this was my country that did this, the only country to use a nuclear weapon. Uh, right. I was filled with such and anger and sorrow. And I felt sorrow. the same way. Yeah, and I felt right, the same right. way. I'm still processing it 30 some years, 32 years later after going over there back in 83. It's still, it's hard. You know, it's yeah. really hard. Yeah, and, and so I came back and I said, I can't forget this, so how can I now combine essentially my two passions? And I was talking to a colleague of mine, and he said, uh, answer one question. What did African Americans think of Truman's decision to drop the bomb? And when I talked to other colleagues and ran this by them, most said the same thing. You're going to run into a dead end. That the reality is that African Americans, understandably so, were trying to gain their own civil rights, their own equality, dealing with their own issues, and they didn't have time to deal with an issue as abstract as something like the bomb. That was looked at as a white issue, a middle class issue, and you're not going to find a response. Well, they were wrong. When I started digging, when I started researching from 1945 all the way up to now, 
the response was incredible and came from all different avenues inside the black community, certainly not monolithic, but it was a huge movement against the bomb, and they looked at it in a dramatically different way than typically whites had. They were looking at the decision to drop the bomb and the nuclear arms race through the lens of colonialism and through the lens of race. And that was fascinating, rewarding, and that's how the project began. And it's amazing because as you say that, I remember what I went up against at that time where the majority of African Americans that I talked to and went to speak to about the issue, my ex-wife and I, that they got it immediately. I would say maybe 2% were in that category that we shouldn't deal with this issue because it's a white-only issue. Why are you doing this? But I guess 98% of the people I dealt with, the school, the the uh, traditional uh, African-American colleges, Howard, Spelman, Morehouse, where we were able to go there, places like that, you know, traveling to different churches and going to venues that the peace movement at that time, they weren't going to. And everyone got it. And I always remember that someone, a student came up to me once and said, I'm glad you came here because no one else wants to talk to us about anything. And I'm glad you came to our school. I think it was Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. And that that's the way it was. It's like, And it still goes on today. I'm not... Really, deal, I always deal in the peace movement, no matter what. But it's still, I still see those same references, even right now. The same. You're thing absolutely that goes right. On. I mean, what, there's so much, uh, <coughs> and it's, it's the same thing today. What we're seeing now is more and more is that uh, people that are looking at, at the same schools or the same issues are going well. Ferguson and Eric Gardner and this new uh, movement or or actions that hopefully will coalesce into a movement. Well, these are the black issues, but climate change right. and Iran and these issues, uh, no, those are, those are, again, those are going to be white issues. And so what we're seeing now with this book coming out, what I'm getting a lot of is a lot of environmental groups contacting me, and they see this as essentially a way in. They're saying we we're trying, we want to get more African Americans, more minorities into the environmental movement, and we don't know how. And now you're showing us that this has always been there. Or, you know, there's this big push to get African-Americans involved in STEM and technology and science and math. Right. We're getting calls from nuclear engineering departments at different schools, uh, Harvard and MIT, saying, your book is showing that there were African-American scientists and mathematicians that actually helped make the bomb and then turned around and protested it. And so it's as if they, they just didn't even know this existed. And so, you know, what I try to tell these students, my students and, and kids that I'm protesting with now at Ferguson and how these issues are related, all of the, the people they look up to, Jimmy Baldwin, Huey Newton, King, uh, Malcolm, Coretta, Kathleen Cleaver, they all protested the bomb. Always. Yeah. They all looked at it as an issue of human rights. And King would say, what does it matter if we're all using the same water fountain, if a cop isn't beating us, if we're all dead from this? That is where we are at right now. And that, I mean, even the budget issues that you dealt with in the 80s where Reagan's taking all this money for nuclear weapons and he's putting it into, uh, taking it out of, out of communities that need it, cutting immensely, and building nuclear weapons. Well, this president is scheduled right now to put a trillion dollars over the next 10 years into new nuclear weapons. When that money, people are asking, how would he pay for two years free community college? Well, well there you go. There's a good start. There it is right there. 
And, and it's so funny, yeah. Vincent, and listeners, you can call, and the number is 424-675-8315. I'm talking with my guest, Professor Vincent, and, I, and I'm familiar with this. I'm using his first name. I know sometimes I'll say <laughs> Professor and Doctor, and Vincent doesn't mind. And Vincent, I, I, told, uh, I uh, did it again. <laughs> I am Tony, who wrote the book, African Americans Against the Bomb, Nuclear Weapons, Colonialism, and the Black Freedom Movement, and it's on Stanford University Press. And it just tells a whole history that hasn't been told. It really hasn't been told fully. You see bits and pieces of it in books and some lectures and all, but never extensively like this book has done. And, I, and again, I just want to thank you, Vincent, for the, you know for writing this book. But it's funny, as you talk about Ferguson, that last summer you did see, and I was really happy to see this connection between what was going on in Ferguson what's going on with the whole issue of police brutality, and what's going on in Palestine. And we've had some shows on here about that. So people are making the global connection. That's something that I always was hoping would happen in the little movement that we were doing back in the 80s, that people would make that connection. And a lot of people did, but it's becoming more universal now. There's still some folks who are questioning things, but basically... I think, and I have to say this, that the younger folks are really getting it. Yeah, I really, um, you know, this 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 movement that is beginning and starting, and I and I really, I, I kind of sometimes cringe when people want so badly to compare it to the civil rights movement. They're they're different movements for so many different ways and reasons, right. and not one is better than the other. It's, they're different, and. Um, when I was in, I was in Florida for four years teaching down there, uh, which was really I, I taught at the school for uh, four years where George Zimmerman went to. So I was knee deep in when Trevon Martin was murdered. Oh, yeah. I remember I was teaching teaching a course on on I was te- literally we were we were looking at Emmett Till the day the nine one one tapes came out, and my kids I remember sobbing at their desks. And I, I had a meeting with um, a young activist, Philip Agnew, who went on to become the executive director of, of uh, Dream Defenders the group that just went to Palestine. Oh, yeah. And and we had talked about, about what they were going to do as a movement, and I had, you know, tried to give them advice. And I saw them, uh, I saw Philip and the Dream Defenders later, years later, at the 50th anniversary march of the March on Washington. And when I ran into him in the press tents, I ran into him and I said, Philip, I said, congratulations, you did it. And Dream Defenders are all over the place. You guys are really making this movement happen. I'm so proud of you. And he said, we haven't done anything yet. And it showed me that they have, they're not too big for their britches. They get it. They realize that they have to go slow and, and they have to train and they, they know what they're doing. And they just got back from Palestine, like you mentioned. That's such a critical piece. Um, I, I'm constantly kind of reiterating this idea that of, of non-white peoples coming together and realizing their fight is the same. And that's what you saw with the boys in Robeson and Jimmy Baldwin, so many during this anti-nuclear movement. They looked at the bomb. This was the thing at, at the center, and they would say, it connects us all from France testing their first nuclear weapon in the Sahara in Africa to the U.S. getting their uranium from the Belgian-controlled Congo. Uh, they saw this as something that linked, it, that linked them all together. And it's really incredible because it hit me, even though we, we started this in 81, and I have to say, too, uh, this organization was started uh, not because my ex-wife and I were like these experts on peace issues and all, it came to me, and I have to say this, it's one thing I want everyone to know, it came to me in a dream. I have to say that I had a series of dreams about this where I saw 
myself doing this. I saw I would go to Japan when I had no money to go to Japan to speak in front of folks in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And all that came to pass. And that was three, two years prior to me actually doing all this. So it's, mm. it's just, you know, it was just really a blessing because I, I, you know, I had asked the spirit, the spirits basically, you know, why me? Why do you want me to do this? Because I had no experience. But I have to tell you this, Vincent, when I started speaking on it, I felt like I already knew the issue to the point that I didn't even have to read anything about it. Mm. It all came out. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, and that was, and that's when I realized that this is what I had to do at that time. And it really, and when I went to Japan, and that's when I really saw the whole worldwide connection when I went to the annual conference on peace in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Tokyo, and actually saw what was the connection and seeing folks from all over the world coming together to talk about peace from the smallest islands off of Papua New Guinea to countries, you know, Germany, the U.S., everywhere. It was just, it was just incredible. So it's yeah. um, something that, you know, you, you know, by reading your book again, it just brings back so many memories, and you're making me want to get back out there again. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it'll inspire a new generation as well. Um, oh, well, you, yeah, know, you they, never they, know. Go ahead. You know, when I, when I, I, I go to Japan every summer, I'll uh, be going back again and, and, uh, and yeah, it's it's amazing too that so many of my Japanese students that I lecture to will have Muhammad Ali T-shirts on. Um, you know, oh, they're yeah. listening to Jay. They, they're they're so influenced by hip hop. So when I lecture, they go one, they don't even realize that there is still racism in our country, and then they don't even realize then when they realize that their heroes, their historical heroes of Malcolm were involved in this, they get excited, they get motivated. So there, there is, a, yeah, there's, and, and that dates back. There was a connection there. It was the Japanese that were helping Ethiopians when Italy invaded, and, and those in the 30s and, and uh, 40s recognized that. Um, you know, when, when Pearl Harbor happened, yes, there was a split in the black community. Many immediately sided with the U.S. Uh, government and the military and tried to distance themselves. That was partly strategic in hopes of getting civil rights to show their loyalty. But there were others that looked at internment and said, this could happen to us. You know, these are yeah. people that are being imprisoned for for what they look like, and they can't assimilate, quote-unquote assimilate, which is simply trying to be white, right? We, they can't because of the color of their skin, neither can we, and we're facing the same discrimination. So there was this connection there. The boys always spoke very highly of the Japanese, so when this happened, it was, uh, you know, there was a real coming together here, and, and people looking and saying, well, why did we not drop it? Langston Hughes asked, why did we not drop it on Germany? Why did Why not on Italy? Why is it on a people of color? Why are we threatening to do it again in Korea and again in Vietnam? Now the Middle East, right? It's always non-white peoples who are being threatened. It's always, you know, and it goes even further than the bomb at the time. When I was doing the work back in the 80s, why were the nuclear trains with the fissional, you know, pieces of weapons and radiation all going through African-American communities? Why was that going on? You know, Absolutely, environmental racism was a huge piece, yes. It was a huge thing. Why were dumps, radiation dumps, in yep. communities of color, especially one that used, I used to shock people, I would tell them, you had one right in the middle of Harlem at yep. one time. It was yep. underground, but it, it, was, was, it was a dump. It, and, and it was African-American GIs 
that were the only jobs they were given were to work in nuclear power plants, given no equipment, their bodies filled with tumors. They become they became the atomic veterans. Uh, some of them recently have just passed, and I had talked to their families, and I tried to write about them and for Huffington Post. And uh, so yes, they were just, they were used as guinea pigs to test the bomb on. So and in all different ways, African Americans have been. Uh, related to this, have have a piece, a, a stake in this, and um, you know, so many of our of our youth don't know that history because we tend we separate African American history. We put them in nice, neat little boxes, and we compartmentalize it. And February comes, and we'll cover it for 28 days, and and that's it. That's right. And, and you you can't do that anymore. With this book, it shows you that they're part of the entire narrative. You cannot look at U.S. foreign policy. You can't look at nuclear studies without studying. African Americans anymore. You, you just can't. And that's why I'm glad this book is out. And one person you mentioned, I want you to talk a little more about him because um, I didn't know this. That's what got me. Um, talk about Malcolm X's experience as far as the whole yeah, nuclear so, issue. Yeah, so, Go so ahead. Malcolm was, you know, one thing I, I was looking at was kind of the idea of the, of the black power movement and, and did that help or, or hurt or splinter and what was going on. And, and as I started looking and, and um, the story of Malcolm came from Yuri Kachiyama, who tragically we just lost in, in June. And I was, when she passed in June, this amazing Japanese American activist right. all through the, through the sixties and so on. And nobody mentioned the story and I had stumbled upon it where survivors of the bomb had come here. They were doing an entire tour and when they were going to stay with her, she organized it. And when she said to them, who do you want to meet? Who do you want to, what do you want to do? And they all said, we want to meet Malcolm X. And she was kind of shocked, and, and, but that's who they had studied. They, that's who they had um, looked up to. They, they wanted to meet him. And so he, he was traveling at the time. He was throughout the Mideast, Africa. And so she wrote him, didn't even know if the letters were getting there. And they stayed, and they went to different places, and they toured Harlem. I believe there was the world's worst fair going on in Harlem as a, as a slight, you know, at the World's Fair and showing poverty and what was happening. And so uh, they're, they're there one of the last days at her apartment. Knock at the door comes. She opens the door. It's Malcolm. He got the letter. He came back. He came back and he sat with them and talked with them and explained to them how colonialism and third world imperialism and Vietnam and bomb and all of this is related to racism and how it's not about civil rights. It's about human rights and how these things are all connected. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's a it's just it's one story of his life, but one story that is not in the narrative that's not talked no. about. And it's amazing how many of my students now that is the person that that, that they want to hear about that they they still look to. Yeah, it's really something. I and like I said, I never knew that story, and I'm glad you brought it out in your book. And also, you know, talk you know talk a little more because I had this. I know you had the same experience. I had the same experience when you actually meet the atomic victims of Hibakusha. And I went to a hospital in Nagasaki, and I still can't get over that. But just talk a little bit about that and the relationship they've had with some other African Americans over the years. Yeah, um, I've met, again, I've been going with the nuclear, as as director of research of the Nuclear Studies Institute, we take students every year uh, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki during the time of the bombing. And we meet with survivors, and one survivor is like a grandmother to me, Coco Kondo. Her father, uh, Reverend Yoshi Tenemoto, is the lead person that John Hershey writes about in the famous book, Hiroshima. 
and she right. was educated in the United States. She's the youngest survivor of the bomb, and she's with us for the entire trip and, and so on and so forth. And the first time I went and heard their testimony, and the museums in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as you know, are, are completely different from anything we have here. Um, maybe the Holocaust Museum would be a close comparison, but that's probably it, and these are actually in many ways. And I would say also maybe the Civil Rights Museum in North Carolina. That's, yes, that really right. reminded yeah, that, that, me of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but these museums are unreal, and there's actually one museum, it's a very small museum in Nagasaki, which is it, it's incredible. Because if you think, it, it, when I explain what it is, it's it's just it, I hope your audience can understand that how important this is. It's a museum in Japan about what the Japanese did to other people. That's incredible. I mean, we have no there's no yeah. museum in the United States about what we've done to other people. No, nowhere. It's U.S. exceptionalism everywhere. And so I remember having my Japanese students who have had their history whitewashed, my Chinese students there who have had their history whitewashed, and they're holding hands walking around this museum and seeing Japanese soldiers beheading people, comfort women, rape of Najing, and they're apologizing to one another. It, it's, it's unbelievable to see the, the, the bonding of these students. For me, in 2005, what really hit me was on August 6th when you have the actual, in the morning there's the ceremony uh, with dignitaries and everybody speaks of the atomic bomb when it dropped. And then at night they have what's called the lantern ceremony. The lantern ceremony is when everybody gathers the Pea Bridge at the famous river where the bomb was dropped and there's survivors there and there's music playing and thousands of people there. And you make, uh, we were with groups of students and we did it together and they give you the materials to make your own floating lantern. And you go in the water yourself, and you put that lantern in, and everybody writes messages on it. And at that moment, when I was waiting in that line, and I was with my new Japanese friends, and I just started thinking about what it was like 60 years ago and seeing the survivors there that I had spoken with, and I just completely lost it. And I was just sobbing and asking for forgiveness and saying, I'm sorry, it's my country. And and they were crying, saying, no, it wasn't you, you weren't there, and so on and so forth. And it took me months to even be able to talk about that that moment. And every year since 2005 that I've gone back to Japan, I say to myself, I got it together now, I'm okay. And when the lantern ceremony comes, I lose it all over again. It's just something that's always going to probably happen to me. And it's just, I don't know how you can go there and not and comes back and just pretend everything's okay. I, I can't. I don't have that in my DNA. I can't do that. And, and um, it, it's incredible. No, it's why? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, because I came back. I mean, it still sticks with me. Thirty some years later, it still sticks with me. My goal this year, because this will be the what's this, the seventh year? Yes. I, yeah, we're, we're I actually. Go, I, we have to talk about this because I really I'm getting my little pennies together. I want to make a return back mm-hmm. over there because I want so to see it So what we're doing is um, because, it, because the 70th anniversary, I've been in talks with a lot of the uh, peace groups, peace action, Global Zero, others, and I think it's time that we really make the push that President Obama visits. Right. Um, President Obama, the one issue – if you go all the way back to his days at Columbia, that he consistently talked about that was near and dear to his heart was nuclear abolition. Now, it's, when he first got into office, we had the Prague speech, 
He started making the new START treaty. He made some serious steps towards this. And when I went to Japan in, in 2010 or nine, after he was elected, uh, they had started their own campaign called the Obama majority. They loved Obama. I was being handed stacks of letters to bring back to him about what he had done. He was getting other countries to turn over their loose materials. He had summits. But then you had Congress changing hands. And in a lot of the Obama way that we've seen, there's been a lot of good, and then there's the but. And in the second right. term, he has not, he really has kind of let this go go to the side. And we are, the Habaksha, the survivors are furious. People in Japan are upset. We don't like this Asia-Pacific pivot he's made, and so on and so forth. And so there really needs to be a push now to say his ambassador, Ambassador Ruse, um, he in 2009 or 10 went to the Hiroshima ceremony, and this was the first time a U.S. ambassador ever did that. And, of course, they called Obama weak and an apologist for it. And Caroline Kennedy, when she became ambassador in 2012, she immediately went to the museums. So Ambassador Ruse was asked, will President Obama ever visit Hiroshima? And he said, yes, I think he will before his presidency is done. Well, this is it. It's the 70th anniversary. There's no more re-elections. Yes, and the survivors have said he doesn't need to apologize. Just going symbolically would mean so much. And so... You know, in my book, I'm trying to say, you know, God, I hope he reads it, to say, look at, look at all these people before you that, that were made it so that you could become president. This was important to them, too. Um, and, and this is the moment. So we have Habaksha and we have artifacts from the, from, from the atomic bombing actually coming to American University. And it's going to be on display from, these artifacts will be on display from June until August. And then we'll be heading back to Hiroshima uh, July 30th to August 11th. And uh, we're really going to push forward and hope that, that this is the year because he really needs, yeah. to, he needs to go. And, I, and I'm really, like I said, I'm saving my pennies because I want to join you over there, Vincent. I want to be with you Please do. over there. And it's just so, I got so many friends over there from, who I still can't stay in contact with 40-some years later. And mm. it's just, a, it's, I mean, 30-some years later, it's just an incredible experience, as well as your book. I'm, you know, I keep fawning over this book, but this is something I've always wanted to see out there. There was a point in my life where I said, well, maybe I have to write this, but I couldn't have done this job. And so I'm just grateful that you did this, and we're getting ready to conclude now, Vince. So anything else you want to say to the listeners out there as far as where they can contact no, you? Um, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that uh, you give me uh, the opportunity. Again, I, I really appreciate your work, and it's you know, I, I hope that the, um, the the readers enjoy it. Um, it's uh, it's out right now. It's on Amazon, and it's also out now more and more on bookshelves. I'm being told it's it's you know, at Barnes and Nobles and Politics and Prose and Lost Boys and Poets and so on. A lot of the stores here in D.C. So it's it's out there now, and I'll be starting a national book tour in February that will take me, I'll be doing uh, places in, I think, Harvard, MIT, and some community events in Boston. I'll be doing schools in Florida, New York, um, the NPT conference in, in April in New York City. I'll probably be down there for that, uh, and then gearing up to go to, uh, to go back to Japan. So if you know people are That's interested, um, my email is pretty easy to find. I'm at Montgomery College. My Twitter handle is my name, Vincent Antondi, so I'm pretty accessible and more than willing to you know, to, 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 to go to those schools, go to those bookstores, community events, and, and, and talk to these people because we need this. I mean, right now, in the, just, you know, in the last couple of days, 
We had yesterday two new House representatives, uh, Mike Rogers, and uh, the other guy's name was uh, Mike Turner. And both of them wrote they wrote a letter to Secretary of Defense Hagel, Secretary of State Kerry, calling for more nuclear weapon bases to be built in Europe. We have Tom Cotton uh, out of Arkansas, new senator who just came out and said we need uh, Iran regime change. These people have no idea what nuclear weapons do. They have no idea that they it's all about, as you allude to in the book, and it's what I always talked about with our organization, it wasn't so much about weaponry as much as just putting money in certain corporations' pockets. Absolutely. I mean, that's what it's really all about, and... I have been to a number of weapons shows during that time and recently, you know, Air Force Association shows and shows where they actually show the weaponry. And it's, all you see there is money changing hands, the corporations are there, and it has nothing yep. to do with the issue of yeah. war, peace, or anything. It's all about dollars. That's all it's about. No, yeah, that's, and it's how the, the Nuclear Studies Institute started at American University. It was actually in 1995 in protest of the Enola Gay exhibit because the Smithsonian, from the backing of well, certain voters right. and, and conservative politicians, refused to have anything, a little, not, not a sentence, about what it actually did to the victims. Uh, and, and that's the, the tragedy. We were, somehow, if we stop and we look at it through the point of view of Japanese eyes, or African American eyes, or African eyes, somehow that makes you weak. It makes you less American, and that couldn't be further from the truth. You're certainly right, Vincent. I'm just happy to have you on today, and we'll be we obviously will be talking many, many times this year and in in the future. So thank you so much. Absolutely. All, All right. right. You. Take care, buddy. Okay. Talk All right. Bye-bye. And again, that was Vincent J. Iantondi, and he wrote the book African Americans Against the Bomb, Nuclear Weapons, Colonialism, and the Black Freedom Movement. It's on Stanford University Press, and it's getting a lot of positive reviews out there. Not because I'm in it, but <laughs> but I am in you know I am in it uh, in the book, and I'm just happy to have you know it, it, it's great to know that the work that you did. Sometimes you're doing something, you think, well, nobody actually cares, and I didn't do anything. But those years of doing that whole anti-nuclear work with Blacks Against the Nukes, creating an organization such as that, it made some differences. I'm just honored to have that opportunity, and that was a very great blessing. And I will be out here talking about, you know, my experiences. But anyway, we're going to get the music here on the Root and Root Show, and we're going to play right now. I'm going to do a little more of this whole anti-nuke stuff, and we're going to go back to the late 40s, the Golden Gate Quintet, and we're going to play Adam and Evil. Let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm troubled to say. Brother Adam, Listen, 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 listen. This is a story of 
atom and evil Their courtship is causing a great upheaval Now Adam was a sweet, young, innocent thing Until the night that Miss Evil took him under her wing Now Adam was an honest, hard-working man He wanted to help out the human clan But Miss Evil got him drunk on prejudice and hate And she taught him how to gamble with humanity's fate So true, I'm talking about Adam and Evil If evil gets Adam, it'll be such a shame Because plenty of big shots are playing that dame Lord, his sleep will be trouble and his life will be cursed Now, if Adam sleeps with evil, Jack, he won't be the first So true, I'm talking about Adam and evil Adam and evil If you don't break up And pretty hard to handle But we'd better step in And stop that scandal Because if Adam and evil Should ever be wed Lord and Don All of us are going to be dead So true I'm talking about Adam And evil Adam and evil If you don't break up that romance We'll all I 
And that's the new one from Cyrus Chestnut on piano, along with Curtis Lundy on bass and Victor Lewis on drums, and that's from their CD, Midnight Melodies. And I played, uh, hey, it's me you're talking to. That's right, and you're talking to me on the Root & Root Show. This is Greg Rasheed, the host of the Root & Root Show. And we're on, if you just tune in, every Friday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And right now, although I may not be on tomorrow night, it depends. I'm waiting for a guest. If not, it might take a little break tomorrow, so we'll see. But in the meantime, I'm going to play, as I told uh, folks earlier in the show, I'm going to play the speech by Dr. King beyond Vietnam, because a lot of folks don't hear this speech. And I, I try to find things and play things that, on the Root & Root show that people don't hear and especially the things about Dr. King, the speeches that are just forgotten or just not played purposely, and we've done a couple of those in the last on the last two shows, and we're going to do this one right now. And this speech is almost an hour or so, but really listen to what he's saying because he's talking about not only Vietnam, just substitute Vietnam for any war, but talk, he's talking about economic issues. So listen right now to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Beyond Vietnam on the Root & Root Show.
time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. <clears throat> Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexing as they often do in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak. And we must rejoice as well, for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm descent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance. For we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns, this query has often loomed large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I am nevertheless greatly saddened. Such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment, or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely 
Well, I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, the church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. I come to this platform tonight to make a passionate plea to my beloved nation. This speech is not addressed to Hanoi or to the National Liberation Front. It is not addressed to China or to Russia. Nor is it an attempt to overlook the ambiguity of the total situation and the need for a collective solution to the tragedy of Vietnam. Neither is it an attempt to make North Vietnam or the National Liberation Front paragons of virtue, nor to overlook the role they must play in the successful resolution of the problem. While they both may have justifiable reasons to be suspicious of the good faith of the United States, life and history give eloquent testimony to the fact that conflicts are never resolved without trustful give and take on both sides. Tonight, however, I wish not to speak with Hanoi and the National Liberation Front, but rather to my fellow Americans. Since I am a preacher by calling, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seven major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam. And I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it was some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place and it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel iron, watching Negro and white boys on TV screens, and they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seek them together 
in the same schools. So we watched them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village. But we realized that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers, as I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men. I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problem, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed and the ghetto without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. For those who ask the question of you, a civil rights leader, and thereby mean to exclude me from the movement for peace, I have this further answer. In 1957, when a group of us formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, we chose as our motto to save the soul of America. We were convinced that we could not limit our vision to certain rights for black people, but instead affirmed the conviction that America would never be free or saved from itself until the descendants of its slaves were loose completely from the shackles they still wear. In a way, we were agreeing with Langston Hughes that black bard of Harlem, who had written earlier, oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. Now it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. It can never be saved so long as it destroys the deepest hopes of men the world over. So it is that those of us who are yet determined that America will be allowed are led down the path of protest and dissent, working for the health of our land. As if the weight of such a commitment to the life and health of America were not enough, another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1954. And I cannot forget that the Nobel Peace Prize was also a commission, a commission to work harder than 
than I had ever worked before for the brotherhood of man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national allegiances. But even if it were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I'm speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists, for that children and ours, for black and for white, for revolutionary and conservative, and they have forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them. What then can I say to the Viet Cong, or to Castro, or to Mao as a faithful minister of this one, and I threaten them with death? Must I not share with them my life? Finally, as I tried to explain for you and for myself the road that leads from Montgomery to this place, I would have offered all that was most valid if I simply said that I must be true to my conviction, that I share with all men the calling to be a son of the living God, beyond the calling of race or nation or creed, is this vocation of sonship and brotherhood, because I believe that the Father is deeply concerned, especially for his suffering and helpless and outcast children. I come tonight to speak for them. This, I believe, to be the privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties which are broader and deeper than nationalism, and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the forceless, for the victims of our nation, for those it calls enemies. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam, and such within myself for ways to understand and respond in compassion, my mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. I speak now not of the soldiers of each side, not of the ideologies of the Liberation Front, not of the hunting inside gone, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution there until some attempt is made to know them and hear their broken cries. They must see Americans as strange liberators. Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1954, uh, in 1945 rather, after a combined French and Japanese occupation, and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh, even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, 
We refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of a former colony. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. We again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform, one of the most important needs in their lives. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war force. Even before the French were defeated at DNB and food, they began to despair of their reckless action, but we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. Soon we would be paying almost the full cost of this tragic attempt at recolonization. After the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come again through the Geneva Agreement. Then instead there came the United States, determined that whole should not unify the temporarily divided nation. The peasants watched again as we supported one of the most vicious modern dictators our chosen man, Premier Diem. The peasants watched and cringed as Diem ruthlessly rooted out all opposition, supported their extortionist landlords, and refused even to discuss reunification with the North. The peasants watched as all of this was presided over by United States influence, then by increasing numbers of United States troops who came to help quell the insurgency that Diem's methods had aroused. Diem was overthrown, they may have been happy, but the long line of military dictators seemed to offer no real change, especially in terms of their need for land and peace. The only change came from America as we increased our troop commitments in support of governments which were singularly corrupt, inept, and without popular support. All the while, the people read our leaflets and received the regular promises <coughs> of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They moved sadly and apathetically as we heard them off the land of their fathers into concentration camps where minimal social needs were rarely met. They know they must move on or be destroyed by our bombs. So they go, primarily women and children and babies. They watch as we poison their water 
As we kill a million acres of their crops, they must weep as the bulldozers roar through their areas, preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wander into the hospitals with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong inflicted injury. So far, we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. They wander into the towns and see thousands of the children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think as we allow ourselves with the landlords and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform, what do they think as we test out our latest weapons on them, just as the Germans tested out new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe, where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these bossless ones we have destroyed that two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in crushing, in the crushing of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political force, the unified Buddhist church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon, we have corrupted their women and children and killed their men. Now that is little left to build on saved bitterness. Soon the only solid, solid physical foundations remaining will be found at our military bases and in the concrete of the concentration camps we call fortified hamlets. The peasants may well wonder if we plan to build our new Vietnam on such grounds as these. If we blame them for such thoughts, we must speak for them and raise the questions they cannot raise. These two are our brothers. Perhaps a more difficult but no less necessary task is to speak for those who have been designated as our enemies. What of the National Liberation Front? That strangely anonymous group we call VC of Communists. What must they think of the United States of America? And they realize that we permitted the repression and cruelty of the DM, which helped to bring them into being as a resistance group in the South. What do they think of our condoning the violence, which led to their own taking up of arms? How can they believe in our integrity when now we speak of aggression from the North as if there were nothing more essential to the war? How can they trust us when now we charge them with violence after the murderous reign of DM and charge them with violence while we pour every new weapon of death into their land? Surely we must understand their feelings even if we do not condone their actions. Surely we must see that the men we supported pressed them to their violence. Surely we must see that our own computerized plans of destruction 
simply dwarf their greatest acts. How do they judge us when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communist and yet insist on giving them the blanket name? What must they be thinking when they know that we are aware of their control of major sections of Vietnam and yet we appear ready to allow national elections in which this highly organized political parallel government will not have a part. They ask how we can speak of free elections when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military hunter. And they're surely right to wonder what kind of new government we plan to help form without them. The only party in real touch with the peasants. They question our political goals and they deny the reality of a peace settlement from which they will be excluded. Their questions are frighteningly relevant. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again, then show it up from the power of new violence? Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. Far from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. If we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. So too with Hanoi, in the north where our bombs now pummel the land, and our minds endanger the waterways. We are met by deep but understandable mistrust. To speak for them is to explain this lack of confidence in Western words, and especially their distrust of American intentions now. In Hanoi are the men who led the nation to independence against the Japanese and the French, the men who sought membership in the French Commonwealth and were betrayed by the weakness of Paris and the willfulness of the colonial armies. It was they who led a second struggle against French domination at tremendous cost, and then were persuaded to give up the land they controlled between the 13th and 17th parallel as a temporary measure at Geneva. After 1954, they watched us conspire with DM to prevent elections which could have surely brought Ho Chi Minh to power over the united Vietnam. They realized they had been betrayed again. And we asked why they do not leap to negotiate. These things must be remembered. Also, it must be clear that the leaders of Hanoi considered the presence of American troops in support of the DiEM regime to have been the initial military breach of the Geneva Agreement concerning foreign troops. They remind us that they did not begin to send troops in large numbers and even supplies into the South until American forces had moved into the tens of thousands. And now I remember how our leaders refused to tell us the truth about the earlier North Vietnamese overtures for peace how the President claimed that none existed when they had clearly been made. Ho Chi Minh has watched as America has spoken of peace and built up its forces. 
And now he has surely heard the increasing international rumors of American plans for an invasion of the North. He knows the bombing and shelling and mining we are doing a part of traditional pre-invasion strategy. Perhaps only his sense of humor and of irony can save him when he hears the most powerful nation of the world speaking of aggression as it drops thousands of bombs on a poor, weak nation more than 800, or rather 8,000 miles away from its shores. At this point, I should make it clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless in Vietnam, to understand the arguments of those who are called enemy, I am as deeply concerned about our own troops there as anything else. For it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are adding cynicism to the process of death for they must know after the short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. Before long, they must know that their government has sent them into a struggle among Vietnamese. The more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak, of the, speak for the poor of America who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home, dealt death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as one who loves America, to the leaders of our own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. This is the message of the great Buddhist leaders of Vietnam. Recently, one of them wrote these words, and I quote, Each day the war goes on, the hatred increases in the heart of the Vietnamese, and in the hearts of those of humanitarian instinct. The Americans are forcing even their friends into becoming their enemies. It is curious that the Americans, who calculate so carefully on the possibilities of military victory, do not realize that in the process they incur incurring deep psychological and political defeat. The image of America will never again be the image of revolution, freedom and democracy, but the image of violence and militarism, unquote. We continue, there will be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. We do not stop our war against the people of Vietnam immediately. The world will be left with no other alternative than to see this as some horrible, clumsy, and deadly game we have decided to play. 
the world now demands the maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. It demands that we admit that we have been wrong from the beginning of our adventure in Vietnam, that we have been detrimental to the life of the Vietnamese people. The situation is one in which we must be ready to turn sharply from our present ways in order to atone for our sins and errors in Vietnam, we should take the initiative in bringing a halt to this tragic war. I would like to suggest five concrete things that our government should do immediately to begin the long and difficult process of ex extricating ourselves from this nightmarish conflict. Number one, end all bombing in North and South Vietnam. Number two, declare a uni unilateral ceasefire in the hope that such action will create the atmosphere for negotiation. Three, take immediate steps to prevent other battlegrounds in Southeast Asia by curtailing our military buildup in Thailand and our interference in Laos. Four, realistically accept the fact that the National Liberation Front has substantial support in South Vietnam, must thereby play a role and any future Vietnam government. Five, set a date that we will remove all foreign troops from Vietnam in accordance with the 1954 Geneva Agreement. and seek status 
as conscientious objectors. These are the times for real choices and not false ones. We are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line if our nation is to survive its own folly. Every man of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions. But we must all protest. Now that is something seductively tempting about stopping there and sending us all off on what in some circles has become a popular crusade against the war in Vietnam. I say we must enter that struggle, but I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And if we ignore this sobering reality, we will find ourselves organizing clergy and layman concern committees for the next generation. They will be concerned about Guatemala and Peru. They will be concerned about Thailand and Cambodia. They will be concerned about Mozambique and South Africa. We will be marching for these and a dozen other names and attending rallies without end unless there is a significant and profound change in American life and policy. us beyond Vietnam, but not beyond our calling as sons of the living God. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. During the past 10 years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression which has now justified the presence of U.S. military advisors in Venezuela, this need to maintain social stability for our investments, accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala, it tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Cambodia, why American napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, 
we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society, when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. That will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just it will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of South America and say, this is not just. Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense and on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead the way in this revolution of values. That is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There is nothing to keep us from molding a recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into a brotherhood. This kind of positive revolution of values our best defense against communism.
or is not one. Communism will never be defeated by the use of atomic bombs and nuclear weapons. Let us not join those who shout war and through their misguided passions urge the United States to relinquish its participation in the United Nations. These are days which demand wise restraint and calm reasonableness. We must not engage in a negative anti-communism, but rather in a positive thrust for democracy. <laughs> Realizing that our greatest defense against communism is to take offensive action in behalf of justice. We must, with positive action, seek to remove those conditions of poverty, insecurity, and injustice which are the fertile soil in which the seed of communism grows and develops. These are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. <coughs> Shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. People who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions that we initiate. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. This powerful commitment we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores, thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Yes. Crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. Mm -hmm. Genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis mm -hmm. that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This calls for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing, embracing an unconditional love for all mankind. This often misunderstood, this often misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. 
I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate, ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another. Yes. For love is God. Yes. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate, bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the records of nations and individuals that pursue this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Tonda says, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word, unquote. We are now faced with the fact, my friends, that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history. That is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flooded ends. We may cry desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant to every plea and rushes on over the bleached bones and jumbled residues of numerous civilizations written the pathetic words too late. That is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. Omar Khayyam's right moving finger rights and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world world that borders on our doors. We do not act. We shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time, reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is the calling of the sons of God, and our brothers wait eagerly for our response. Shall we say the odds are too great? Shall we tell them the struggle is too hard? Will our message be that the forces of American life militate against their rivalous poor men, and we send our deepest regrets? Will there be another message of longing, hope, 
of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost, the choice is ours. And though we might prefer the wise, we must choose and choose a moment of history when history. That noble bard of yesterday, James Russell Lowell, eloquently stated, once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side, some great cause, God's new Messiah, often eats the gloom of light, and the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet this truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And if we will only make the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. We will make the right choice. We will be able to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. We will but make the right choice. We will be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream.
And if you want to become a sponsor, if you have suggestions for shows or anything, just go on those sites and I'll be more than happy to talk to you. Just happy for all the followers who are joining the program because we are a growing network, not just not just in the USA but through all over the world. So I'm just very grateful to have the opportunity to be on this uh, program two times a week, uh, Friday and Saturday, and we should be on tomorrow night. I'm working on a guest, but if we don't have a guest, we might just do all music and done that many times before. But this is Greg Rasheed. I want to say to you again, go in love and go in peace. And I'm going to leave you with, uh, I think I'll leave you with Joe. We're going to do it a little slow as we leave here. And this is uh, Joe and I Want to Know. So go in love and go in peace again. And this is Greg Rasheed with the Root and Root Show. We'll see you very soon. From the bottom